Evening, everyone. And thank you, Sarah. Uh, during my holiday this year, uh, I read the best-selling novel, I Am Pilgrim. Uh, it was great, really enjoyed it. But at one point, uh, the main character said something that grabbed my attention, and so I wrote it down in, in my journal. And it turns out it was a quote by Robert Louis Stevenson, who, the Scottish novelist who famously wrote Treasure Island. So here's the phrase. Sooner or later, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. Or sooner or later, we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. I just have a wee think about that for a moment. It, it's, a, it's an arresting, sobering thought. And in David's story, King David's story, that is, this proved to be his, his personal and painful experience. Just before the, the summer, we, we spent two months uh, tracking David's life from the moment that he became the second king of Israel after Saul. And, and so this evening and for the next few weeks, we're going to pick up from where we, we left off. And part two of David's life, sort of post-coronation, was not his best. And immediately after his affair with Bathsheba, and then his killing or arranged killing of her actual husband Uriah, David's spiritual advisor, Nathan, spoke these powerful and disturbing words into David's life. They were actually words direct from God. And you find them in 2 Samuel 12, 10. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your own, David. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. The section of David's story that we're about to look at tonight is the outworking of this prophecy. David is about to eat at that banquet. He's about to discover that when we make poor moral choices, there's often a kickback. And tragically, the kickback and the consequences can be, for some people, severe. Yes, there's hope. We don't have to be defined by the mistakes we make. And David wasn't defined by the mistakes he made. David goes down in history as a man after God's own heart. So we don't have to be defined by the mistakes we make. And we can be forgiven for the mistakes we make, and David was forgiven. Psalm 51 proves that. But in this life, sooner or later, we have to face up to and deal with the outcome and the knock-on effect of certain decisions. And this part of David's story is a poignant reminder of that fact. But this is, is more than a story about consequences. It is that. 
It's also a profoundly moving portrait of natural human grief. Tonight we're going to watch as a father's heart is broken and ripped apart following the tragic death of his son. Now I know that the subjects of consequences and grief are pretty heavy issues for the first Sunday night back after the summer. But the problem whenever you set out looking at a series and trying to track someone's life is you encounter the difficult chapters. And as much as I would love to avoid this one, I can't. And I couldn't with all integrity. So there is going to be a heaviness about what I'm about to share this evening. And at one level, I apologize for that. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18. It's page 323 in the Pew Bibles. And, and as you get there, let me just fill in some background. The five chapters before this one record the somewhat dysfunctional relationship between a father and a son. Dysfunctional families are not a new phenomenon. And David's relationship with Absalom was marked by tension and by conflict. And if you read chapters 13 through to 17, it tells a story that's full of intrigue and full of moral feelings by both David and Absalom, but particularly Absalom. Absalom, you will remember, murdered his half-brother, Amnon. And the reason that he murdered Amnon is because Amnon raped their sister, Tamar. And then Absalom initiated a civil war against his father because he wanted to become king. And then on one distressing occasion to show off his royal credentials, Absalom publicly slept with 10 of David's concubines in sight, it says, of all Israel. It was a kind of peep show extraordinaire. And as we get to 2 Samuel 18, there is about to be a final showdown between father and son. Between David's army and Absalom's army, which is referred to in the text as Israel's army. But how it all plays out is fascinating, it's devastating, and so can I invite you, as we often do, to please stand for the public reading of God's enthralling word. And I'm going to take time to read a lot of this chapter and I'm going to go slower than I certainly did last Sunday morning when I was reading God's word and thank you for those of you who brought me up on that uh, but at any point you want to sit down just feel free to do that but let's let's listen David mustered the men who were with him and he appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds and David sent out his troops a third under the command of Joab a third under Abishai, and a third under Ittai. And the king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, no, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care, but you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. And so David answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of one hundred and thousands. The king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake, 
And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of his commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. And the battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword, whatever that means. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair, while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I have just seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, David commanded you and Abishai and I protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, listen, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and he plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. Then they took Absalom, threw him into a big pit, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. Let's go down to verse 24. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. And he looked out and he saw a man running alone and the watchman called out to the king and reported it and the king said, if he's alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, well, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like a Himaz son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said, he comes with good news. Then Ahimez called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He's delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord and king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimez answered, Well, I, I saw great confusion. Just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but, but I don't know what the confusion was all about. The king said, Stand aside, wait here. So he stepped aside and he stood there and then the Cushite, the second runner, arrived. My lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you into the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king, David, said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was deeply moved 
And he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Take a seat. Right from the very start of this chapter, you sense that things are starting to unravel for David. You know, right at the start, he he appears to be in control. He's dividing and he's subdividing his army into units of hundreds and thousands. But when he says, I'm personally going to take the lead and I'm going to march out front, his men immediately turned to him and challenged his proposal and rejected his suggestion. Now, they do it diplomatically. They say, listen, David, you're a highly prized asset. Therefore, you stay in the background. You stay on the sidelines. You hang back. And whatever is going on, this is a new development. You see, previously, his army loved it when David took the lead. David was known as a great military leader. He had a massive reputation. But now it seems there's a change. His authority, his words no longer carry the same weight they once did. The question is why? What's happened? Is it because of the king's failure to deal adequately with the rape of Tamar? Why didn't the king do something? Why did he leave it for two years until Absalom turned around and killed Amnon? Because it looked like David was weak. And is it because David didn't deal with Absalom for killing Amnon? We can't be sure why it is, but it's pretty, pretty obvious that David at this stage in the story, has lost a certain amount of gravitas. And this is further illustrated whenever his one explicit order, the one thing he said, just falls in deaf ears. David instructs his men, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And as verse 5 tells us, everyone heard that order. Everyone heard it. And yet... David's orders are not only ignored, they're blatantly disobeyed. And I don't want to read too much into this or make too big deal of what's going on, especially if it's not clear from the text. But you see, whenever a leader loses respect, whenever what they say is increasingly challenged and or disregarded, you start to wonder, is that the beginning of the end? Is there future in that rule, sustainable? Or are they on their way out? See, David, it seems, is talking the talk, but people aren't listening. Or at least they're not listening as carefully and as attentively and as seriously as they once did. And so, David stays in the background as his army enters the theater of conflict, which on this occasion is a forest. 
And we read that David's army enjoyed a stunning victory. Thousands of the opposition lost their lives. But then the narrative homes in on one victim. Absalom. Who were told, and I find this fascinating, were told happened to meet David's servants. Was that coincidence or providence? Bad luck or destiny? The one thing the word happened seems to imply is that God was all over this. And Absalom is riding through the forest. And given the situation, we assume, we're not told for definite, but we assume that he's riding to escape with his life. When suddenly his head gets caught up in low-hanging branches. And it says he's left suspended in midair. Some of your translations will say he's left hanging between heaven and earth, between life and death. Most people and most artists tend to think, although the text on most translations doesn't actually say this, it says his head got stuck, but most artists, and most of us have probably kind of grown up, if you've grown up with a story, thinking it was his hair. Hands up if you always thought it was his hair that got stuck. Yeah, lots of people, okay? Text doesn't actually say, text says head. Some translations say hair. Most artists depict it as his hair. And that's understandable. Because one of the things that we know about Absalom, bit of feedback, right? One of the things we know about Absalom, for those who have kind of been tracking this series with us, we know that he only did what once a year? Cut his hair. And the reason that he only cut his hair once a year was because it became too heavy. And once he cut his hair, what did he then do with it? He weighed it. And if you recall the evening we looked at that, what we said is that that fact is an indication that what we're dealing with here is a young man who's quite into himself. He's quite egocentric. He's quite vain. He is a man of style over substance. And again, if nothing else, and I know again we've got to be careful about reading too much into this, but in terms of the overall David story, this is surely another reminder that although we, that although our society and our culture concentrate and place so much emphasis on outward appearance, it's the real us. It's the state of in here that really matters. Because although we look on outward appearance, God sees and searches hearts. And Absalom's self-preoccupation and self-obsession eventually caught up with him and threatened to be his downfall, literally. And just one other passing comment regarding this harrowing scene, because I, I really, I know there was a cartoon image of it, but I, I wanted to try to picture this scene. This man hanging on a tree, suspended between heaven and earth, life and death. And according to the Hebrew Scriptures, to the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's a provocative thought. And for us as Christians, it's an image that invokes the horrors and hopes of another man who was hung on a tree, suspended between heaven and earth, between life and death, 
waiting his imminent death at the hands of merciless men. It's just a passing thought. Back to the narrative. One of David's soldiers catches up with Absalom. But he does nothing to him. And the reason he does nothing to him is because he hears David's explicit orders ringing in his ears. Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And so what does he do? He goes and he tells his commander Joab what he has seen, who he has found. Joab cannot believe what this foot soldier is saying. Why didn't you kill him? And so Joab decides to take matters into his own hand. And again, I want you to pause for a moment because those who've been following this series will remember, or hopefully you will remember, that it was Joab who actually killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, under the explicit instructions of David. Now, in this forest, Joab is killing Absalom in direct defiance of David's instructions. It's another illustration of the fact that David had lost his authority. And Joab sticks three spears or javelins through Absalom's heart, and then 10 of his armor bearers complete the killing. And it's, it's another horrendous scene. And the scene ends with Absalom's body being unceremoniously dumped into a pit and just covered in stones. And in those days, news from the battlefield and news from the war zone wasn't immediate, it wasn't instant. And so runners had to be sent to update home. And two men were given, or two men wanted the chance to inform David of developments. And, and as David sits between the city gates, his lookout is up on the city walls and sees the two runners making their way toward the city. And whenever the first arrives, the first confirms, listen, David, all's well, and he blesses God for the victory that God has given to David's army. But that wasn't the information David was after. All David wanted to know was, I don't want to know if all is well. I want to know specifically, is it well with Absalom? And the first runner can't bring himself to tell the king that his son's dead. And so he says, listen, David, although I was aware of this huge commotion in the forest, I've no idea what it was about. And you know something? It's a blatant barefaced lie. Because if you look at verse 20, Joab had told this runner that Absalom was dead. Why was he not prepared to tell the truth? Was it because he, he didn't know or he was afraid of how David would react towards him? Was it because he couldn't bring himself to tell the truth? Was it because that he knew the truth would be too painful to hear? Who knows? And why is it that we don't always tell the truth? The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Are we scared of how others will react? Are we frightened that people just can't actually handle the truth? Or do we think, do you know something, just sometimes the truth isn't worth telling? It's a risky, dangerous business because inevitably, sooner or later, the truth always comes out as it did here. And so the second runner arrives. 
And again, his initial message is to confirm the king's victory, but David says the same question. Listen, is it well with the young man Absalom? And this runner can't quite bring himself to state the facts explicitly, and so in a rather cryptic phrase, he says, may all the enemies of the king be like this young man. In other words, and David knew this, in other words, dead. And at this point, David breaks down. And he's deeply moved. And it says he heads for his room where the tears start to flow and he cries out in what is regarded by many as one of the most moving speeches in all of Scripture. And I I know I, I cannot do this justice. Oh, my son Absalom. My son, my son Absalom. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, and it's heartbreaking because here is a father who mourns the loss of his child. And yes, this has been a son who has caused him plenty of heartache and difficulty, but he was still his son. He may have been the thorn in his flesh, but he was also the apple of his eye. And whatever else we take from this story, And this point in the story, let's not overlook, let's not rush past the pain of a grieving father following the dreadful death of his son. And it's a moving portrait. And you know, sometimes I know I'm guilty of just reading these stories and rushing on. But this is a moving portrait of human grief that is replicated day in and day out in our world, in our communities, in our families. And I know there are some people sitting here, and this has been your story. Grieving, heartbroken over the loss of a child. And I'm about to go on, yes, I'm about to go on and finish up talking about those banquet of consequences. But please don't miss this profound image of a dad whose world has just fallen apart. And let's just pause for a moment to remember those who mourn tonight, who will lie in their own bedrooms with tears flowing down their cheeks. See, David's story contains virtually every human emotion. And what I love about God's word is it doesn't duck the grittiness of human life. But as we close, let me go back to where we started. Because you see, the death of Absalom, just like the death of the baby that Bathsheba had following her affair with David, represents both of those things, and I, I find this hard to say, but both of those things represent the outworking of Nathan's prophecy. The sword, David, shall never depart from your house. Sooner or later, 
we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. What we reap, or you reap what you sow. The choices we make on a daily basis, every single one of them have consequences. Yes, some trivial, but some of those consequences are life-changing. And as one late popular educator and writer once said, while we are free to choose our actions, we are not free to choose the consequences of our actions. And David's rebellious and disobedient and selfish actions at this point in his life cost him dearly. And the moment that we think that what we say and what we do and what we think doesn't matter, or that we can do what we want and ignore or forget the knock-on effect is the moment that we add another dish to the banquet. And as I said at the beginning, yes, we, we all make mistakes, and in Christ we can be forgiven. There is hope, there is redemption, but that does not mean we will never have to deal with or face up to the fallout from our choices in this life. To some extent. Sin that has been forgiven by God, and David's sin was forgiven by God, Psalm 51. Sin that has been forgiven by God can still leave human scars. But in the next life, in eternal terms, those who have been forgiven by God, those who have put their trust in the man who hung on a tree that we have remembered in this simple meal, for those people, and that's many of you who are here this evening, there is a day coming whenever we will all sit down at a very different banquet. And I hope and pray that every single person who's in this church this evening has reserved a place at that particular table. 